Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love, and it overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Oline, Vicar Timothy Steele II. We are privileged to serve the saints here at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church. Each week we come together and we take a look at the upcoming readings for our divine service. Today we're going to be looking at the readings for the 19th Sunday after Trinity. The readings that we look at are according to the one-year series in LSB, proclaiming the one, but more than that, we are proclaiming the one and only Savior from sin, the one from whom the forgiveness of sins exudes and flows, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Pastor, how are you today as we gather to look at Trinity 19 readings? I'm doing well. Yeah, how about you? Well, that's a deep subject. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it's one of those days here as we uh, record. It is a uh, great time to be alive. It is a great time to be a Lutheran. And uh, while everything is in seeming chaos and disarray in our world, in our country. We're getting closer and closer to a national election, and people are very, very fearful of what that will mean and bring for our country, for our communities, for our families, for our individual soul. It is always good to look at the anchor of God's Word, that sure and trusty foundation that we can cling to in any and every situation. The gospel reading for Trinity 19, Matthew 9, 1 to 8. Vicar, take it away. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. They were afraid. They glorified God. Why? Because God had given authority to men, and the specific authority we're talking about here is the forgiveness of sins. So we've got a lot to unpack here. Pastor, we're in Matthew chapter 9. We know that in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have recorded for us the uh, first great discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 8, 
it it almost seems like you're reading the Gospel of Mark because boom, 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 things are happening at lightning fast, immediately, immediately, immediately things are happening. And many of the things that Jesus is doing in Matthew 8 are miracles. you got all kinds of miracles going on. And now that continues on in Matthew 9 here at the very beginning where Jesus heals this paralytic. Pastor, is that a fair way to look at these chapters here, Matthew 8 and 9, following the teaching, now Jesus is going out and giving authenticity to those teachings through the miracles? Well, I mean, authenticity to the miracles, that's kind of a modern way to talk, I guess. He is teaching uh, and showing by his teaching that he is more than just your regular guy. I mean, so the miracles that he's done, here we have him healing a paralytic. Uh, he's able to calm a storm. He drives out demons. He heals many people, uh, cleanses lepers and things like that. Those are things that the average person cannot do. I am unable to uh, calm a storm or to uh, take leprosy away from someone. Uh, yet Jesus is able to do that by the power of his word. And the question is then why? He's able to do that because he's God in flesh. It's uh, reminding us that Christmas is an important thing, that Jesus is somebody more than the average guy, that he is the Son of God in human flesh, come to suffer, bleed, and die to take away our sins. At the beginning of our text here, Matthew 9, 1 to 8, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. Can you put some dates and geography with that uh, kind of a generic verse? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, so his own city here, what what are we referring to? Well, um, because he's in a boat and traveling there, we know that this is referring to the city of Capernaum. Jesus, of course, was born in Bethlehem, which is quite a ways away, uh, but he was raised in the city of Nazareth, which is about, oh, seven or eight miles away from the Sea of Galilee. But when he begins his uh, preaching ministry, he moves to the city of Capernaum, and he stays in the house of Simon Peter uh, and... Uh, and goes about his preaching and teaching in that area around the region of Galilee. And so coming back to the city of Capernaum, uh, that's where this particular thing is going to take place. And Capernaum is a fishing village on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of an interesting city. The city of Capernaum in the time of Jesus was made from black rock basalt, uh, which is a neat thing. And you can actually go visit some of these places. They have the remains of the synagogue of Capernaum, where the foundations are the ones that Christ would have seen. There's a church, looks like a UFO, built over um, the site of an ancient church that is likely built over the room that Jesus stayed in, in Simon Peter's house. You can get an idea of um, the... um, the life of a fisherman there. You can see the places where Jesus would have walked, and even we have a good idea of the places between Nazareth and Capernaum where he walked because there's a well-used highway that travels down a valley between the two locations. And so it, it does, this is a real place, a real time with real people, and we need to wrap our minds around that. Vicar, what happens? Uh, early on here in our text in verse 2 what's the uh, what's the situation that Jesus is confronted with when he gets to the city there's always you know crowds following him and some of the people brought to him a paralytic lying on the bed or the stretcher and they brought him to Jesus presumably hoping that he would heal him yes and uh, uh, whether they 
fully understood uh, who Jesus is at this point in time. Uh, you know, we don't need to speculate too much about that kind of stuff. They heard that Jesus was a miracle worker. Word travels fast, especially in small towns, and huge crowds are there. Pastor, this uh, account here in Matthew 9 gives us the Reader's Digest condensed version of this miracle. The other synoptic gospels, Mark and Luke, give us many, many more details with regard to the healing of the paralyzed man on the mat. So what can we glean from the other books of the Bible with regard to the context that Jesus faces here with regard to this particular paralyzed man laying on a mat? Well, in, in Mark's gospel, uh, and, and this is Mark chapter 2, um, we see that there is a large crowd of people following Jesus. Presumably, they've seen the miracles that he's done, and they want to see one for their own eyes or have heard about him and want to see them with his own eyes. So the, these people are unable to get to Jesus, and so they must climb up onto the roof and dig a hole in the roof, uh, which, I mean— that fits into the very architecture of the time and the location. It's a, one of those clues that if you're making up the story much later, you probably would not include because it seems a little odd and, and unusual, but it does lend credence to the veracity of this particular gospel lesson. And so this large crowd, they have to get to him through the roof, and they do so, and that's what brings this man before the, the feet of Jesus to be uh, dealt with according to the word of God. So they actually believed that Jesus would heal their friend. They, boy, I, that's what they're hoping. Uh, they have that faith, and we see those words in uh, Matthew's gospel here, when Jesus saw their faith. Now, um, I think the way that this is written by Matthew belays something more than just they know that he's going to heal their friend. I think when they say that Jesus saw their faith, Jesus realizes that they, in one sense, are at least proto-Christians if they're not Christian already. You know what I mean? They believe that Jesus is something more than just a regular guy, and Jesus, being God in the flesh, can acknowledge that and see that. And I think that then informs what Jesus does for the man to begin with, because he treats him as a Christian. Uh, he doesn't just automatically make it so that he can walk as if he needs that before he can begin to understand who Christ is, but instead he does what God does for all Christians everywhere and all times and places, he forgives him his sin by the power of the word of Jesus. Okay, I don't want, I don't want you to get ahead here, uh, but you're, you're 100% right. Um, so the expectation is these men have their paralyzed friend on the mat. They get to the house, they want Jesus to heal their friend. Uh, they can't get close because of the large crowd. They crawl up on the roof. They dig a hole in the roof. They lower the man down with rope right in front of Jesus' uh, face, and Jesus responds, and the response that Jesus gives has to be a disappointment to the man on the mat and has to be a disappointment to the friends. What do you think, Vicar? I mean, if you're bringing your paralyzed friend to a healer to make it so he can walk again, and the man says, your sins are forgiven, I mean, why did you even make the trek and go through all the work when the result you wanted isn't what you got. 
but what you got is something much greater. I think this is how many people look at this particular miracle. Pastor, now I want you to expand on what you said just a little bit ago. Yeah, well, so how, I, how did how did Jesus, by not living up to their expectation, exceed their expectations and blow them out of the water? We got about a minute. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it takes longer than a minute to get through this. I think Jesus disappoints us, and I think he disappoints those who are there watching as well. I don't know that he disappoints the friends of the man because he sees their faith and knows what they they have an, a faith that knows what they need, and perhaps this man as well knows what he needs. And so I think we're reading our emotions and our disappointment in what Christ does uh, into those people, and we I don't I'm nervous to do that. We struggle with the, the difficulty of believing that the word of Jesus does what it says. When the pastor says, I forgive you your sins, we struggle to believe that. And yet it's true. It really happens. And we need to believe that. And Christ is going to back up that forgiveness with what happens next. But we, every week, when we hear the absolution, struggle to believe it. And that's sin that we need to repent of. And so Jesus is doing this for our good and for our edification. And I, and I think that uh, misunderstanding of the person and work of Jesus, what we are expecting of Jesus when we come before him in the divine service, I think this is a uh, topic that we really need to spend more time on. And we'll do that when we come back from our break. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the 19th Sunday after Trinity. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. No scheming, no contrivance. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Thank you for tuning in. We're looking at the readings for the 19th Sunday after Trinity in this program. In our first segment, we gave the introduction and the background behind Matthew 9, 1 to 8, and there is so much to talk about with this particular text, where we ended off on our last segment, Pastor, was talking about expectations. And we don't really know if the men that brought in the man, their friend laying paralyzed on a mat, if they were satisfied or happy with what Jesus did. We know that they expected Jesus to heal him that they expected Jesus to perform a miracle. Jesus oftentimes blows our expectations out of the water. And, uh, Pastor, I want to ask you a question. Was it a false, misleading dream? Was it a false expectation? Was it uh, foolish of the people if they thought that the primary reason for Jesus preaching and teaching and even coming to earth was to heal physical ailments. 
Uh, yeah, I think that is a false misleading dream. Uh, it's a wrong picture of who Jesus is. And here's why. <clears throat> If that's all Jesus has come for, and he makes this man walk, and he heals a bunch of other people, uh, you know, even if he raises, we had a couple weeks ago, that raises the uh, widow's son at Nain from the dead, that sounds really nice and amazing, and it is. I, I mean, I can't do it. It's an amazing thing. But if that's it, what's he do when this man who's paralyzed dies later because he's 100 years old? What's he do for that widow's son when he dies again, Right. Um, if Christ is only a doctor, if you will, and nothing more, that still doesn't answer what the biggest challenge and question that we have is, what's our standing with God and what happens when we die? And we're going to learn about Jesus that he's going to take care of our standing before God. He does it for this man, right? Your sins are forgiven. Well, how can he do that? Who does he think he is? He's God in the flesh. That's why he can say your sins are forgiven. And what does that mean then for... Um, what happens when we die? Well, if our sins are forgiven, then the curse that we had given to Adam and Eve in the beginning, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die, also is forgiven, which means death has been dealt with, and you will not surely die any longer, yet shall you live forever. And so you see, there's more important questions than, will I suffer in this world? Will I be paralyzed? Will I be blind or deaf or, or whatever? Um, you know, for me, will I be obese? And uh, <laughs> or, or, or whatever the question is, God answers something bigger and better than we could ever hope for. He promises us eternal life and forgiveness and peace and comfort before God so that we need not be afraid any longer. And I think that's the thing that we need to emphasize, and that's what Jesus is teaching us here. In, uh, in the Lutheran Church, we talk about the material principle. Uh, some of our hearers may be familiar with that term. It's the most important thing, the thing that matters most, the, the heart, the core, the center, the soul of what we are about as Lutheran Christians. And Lutherans confess in word and in deed that the material principle, the most important thing, is justification. Being declared righteous, not on account of our works, but on account of the person work of Jesus Christ. In other words, the forgiveness of sins. Pastor, we make that bold confession. This is our confession in our confessional writings of the Lutheran Church. Justification by grace, the forgiveness of sins, is the reason the church exists. We say that, and yet so often, by our words and actions. We give the impression that we don't believe it. Would you agree that that's a problem in our churches today? I think it is, and I, I think it, it manifests itself in several ways. We don't believe uh, that we actually get forgiven of our sins. We don't know how to go about getting the forgiveness of sins, which means we don't understand who a pastor is. Or we, uh, you know, I heard this one when I was in college, you know, pastors think that they're Jesus, and that's not the case. We're merely his ambassadors speaking the word for him. Uh, or maybe we're afraid that our sin cannot be forgiven. We have all sorts of problems and challenges where we don't really know 
rightly how to approach God and to receive the thing that he is most eager to give, which is the forgiveness of sins. And these people in our gospel lesson are dealing with the same thing. They they know that God can forgive sins, but they don't know how that's going to happen. They don't know what it looks like, and they don't know who's going to bring it to them. Uh, and maybe they're stuck in the old way of thinking even, you know, um, you're going to get this by uh, bringing a sheep to the temple and sacrificing it, and that's the way your sins are going to be forgiven. But I think even that is kind of a challenge for your long-term faith um, before God. And so what what's the, the thing that God can actually do? Well, he's going to speak his word, I forgive you all your sins, or in this case, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Why is Jesus accused here, uh, at least in, in their hearts, uh, the scribes, why is Jesus uh, accused of blasphemy by forgiving the paralyzed man's sins? Well, that's the, the very thing, is that they know and believe that only God can forgive sins. Um, that's the thing they've been taught in confirmation class when they were kids. It's the thing they've been taught um, throughout all their lives as they went to the temple and, and offered sacrifices. That's why they had to go to the temple and couldn't just do it at home, because it had to be before God that their sins were forgiven. That's the day of atonement where the high priest goes in and pours the blood before God, because only God can forgive sins. So when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, that's speaking in the place of God, and they maybe believe that uh, more than we do, <laughs> and that's where we need to repent and trust that Jesus is God, and he is speaking on his behalf. So when we come to church and our expectations place the forgiveness of sins, secondary, tertiary, not even not even on our radar screen, uh, we, are, we are really sinning boldly. Is that fair? I, yeah, I don't know how bold it is. We're sinning foolishly in that way, maybe. Um, I think when we're boldly sinning, that's where we're actually going to tell God about it and say, here's how I have sinned, and that's when he can forgive us. Um, and so, yeah, this is a big problem. If you come to church to primarily praise God, you're there for the wrong reason. The praise comes as a result of what he does for you and forgiving you. If you're there because you have comfortable pews, that's the wrong reason. You can have a comfortable chair in your own home uh, that's probably way more comfortable than the one at, at church. If you're coming because they have a good coffee bar in the back and you're not there for the forgiveness of sins, that's the wrong reason. If you're there because your pastor's really hip and cool, uh, I know that's not why people come here to Good Shepherd, of course, but uh, if that's the reason you go to church, that's the wrong reason. What do you go to church for? To be forgiven of the sin that you have committed in thought, word, and deed by what you have done and by what you have left undone. That's the most important thing that you can get at any church, and that's the thing you ought to be looking for and hoping for and trusting in when you go. Jesus has a uh, question, a bit of a conundrum question. He says, which is easier? to say your sins are forgiven, or to say get up and walk. Vicar, before you were talking about the uh, faith healing service, uh, hopefully you're not conducting that on your spare time on your vicarage, but uh, if someone goes to a faith healing service, what is easier for the faith healer to say? Your sins are forgiven, or rise, pick up your mat, and walk? It's easier for them to say, rise, pick up your mat, and walk, because... That that's the whole point of their shtick, you know. They're they're there to you know supposedly heal people, but 
that's not what God wants to give. Okay. Now, uh, I, I was bold to be able to ask you that question because no matter how you asked it, I was going to uh, be the devil's advocate. Um, Vicar, if I tell you your sins are forgiven, or if I tell you your broken leg is now healed, which one of those can you verify? I can scientifically verify. Scientifically verify, you could scientifically verify if my leg is still broken or not. Correct. Correct. And so in one way, the easiest thing to do is to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to prove whether you actually did it or not. Pastor, how is that the point of what Jesus is saying here? Well, He's going to say, your sins are forgiven, and then to verify for their eyes that he has that authority within himself. And I think authority is a really important part of this whole business. To prove he has the authority, he's also going to say, okay, get up and walk. And when the man gets up and walks at the word of Jesus, it not only proves that he has the authority to make a a paralyzed person walk, but he also had the authority he spoke before to forgive sins. And that's great. And this brings us to Matthew chapter 28, where all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And so what does he say to the apostles? Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations by means of baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, by teaching them all the things that I've commanded you, which part of that would be confession and absolution. Uh, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age, which would include his presence in, with, and under the bread and wine and the Lord's Supper. In other words, Jesus uses his authority to send pastors out to deliver the forgiveness of sins that he has earned to the people of the church. And that is really a key part of this particular text. It may seem that the most important thing God can do for you is to heal your physical malady, to heal your emotional malady, to heal your mental illness, to bring grandma back from the grave, to wipe away uh, a particular virus that is uh, still lingering around who knows for how long to take away diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's, you name it. It may seem like that is the most important thing that God can do. Pastor, the most important thing God can do, he has already done. And that is through the person and work of Jesus. Salvation accomplished Good Friday and Easter. And we go to church so that that salvation earned on Good Friday and Easter is distributed to us through God's specific and desired means. Is that a fair assessment of why and what is going on at church? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it, and I would even take it a step further and say uh, your pastor's here to give that to you any time that you need it. And so when you are challenged and struggling with the effects and weight of sin, and it is making you suffer here in this world— Go and talk to your pastor, confess your sin, and hear the forgiveness of Jesus. It's not my forgiveness or Pastor Poppy's forgiveness. It's the forgiveness of God distributed through his word, which your pastor is called to speak to you. And that is the primary reason God has given you a pastor, so that you can know for sure and certain that your sins 
are forgiven. Without a doubt, with absolute certainty. Oh, boy. We need to uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to look at our Old Testament reading for Trinity 19, Genesis 28, 10 to 17. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. If God himself be for me, that's always the question, isn't it? Is God for me or is God against me? I think that's a uh, marvelous question to put before us as we venture into our Old Testament reading for the 19th Sunday after Trinity. This is Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. Take it away, Genesis 28. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place, and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you in your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread about to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Okay, well, I want to move now, Pastor. I want to move to this place. I want to find the exact spot on my GPS, and I want to, I want to live the rest of my days on this spot because this is an awesome spot. This is an awesome place. This is no place other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I want that gate of heaven. I want that portal so that, uh, you know, kind of like an old Star Trek, I can, I can uh, transfer or transpose. Transport. Uh, transport through the portal uh, from uh, the sinful life here to heaven. Uh, is, that, is that what this text is teaching me, that I should look for that specific speck of dirt in the Holy Land? Uh, no. And in fact, the honest truth is we're not 100% sure where this location is. We have good guesses. Uh, we have a general idea. We can probably draw a uh, five-mile circle and know that it's somewhere in there, but the exact location is not known. Um, and those who try to take it a step further than that and say there's a ladder to heaven usually fall into a different religious category than Christian. Uh, and so maybe I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> 
Yeah, and uh, I. Th- that's one of the reasons why God does not tell us, give us GPS coordinates, because we would take our focus off of the real thing. We would take our focus off of Christ, off of his person and work, off of the forgiveness of sins, and we would turn something into an idol that God does not expect for us to uh, to take away from our worship of the one true God. Pastor, we don't need to get into the geography of Beersheba and Haran. What's going on here with Jacob? Why is he on the run? Well, he's on the run because of conflict with his brother. Uh, and this is... Uh, kind of, you know, famous in this in the sense that we all know it, but we haven't always learned the details. There's conflict between Jacob and Esau. The two of them were twins. They're born at the same time, uh, and yet Esau was the one born first. Um, and what's really riding on this is the promise of a Savior that God promised all the way back to Adam and Eve, and that promise is passed down uh, through their son Seth, it passed down to Noah, it passed down to uh, Nahor, it passed down to Abraham, it passed on to Isaac, and now the promise is supposed to be passed on as well, and oftentimes it's passed on to the oldest son. That's the way that it's been going. And so it seems like Esau should have that promise, and yet Esau doesn't seem too concerned with that inheritance. Esau doesn't seem too concerned about being the firstborn. He gives his birthright away for a, a pot of soup so he's because he's hungry. Um, and um, his brother Jacob takes advantage of that and buys it from him. His brother Jacob also uh, tricks their father by uh, dressing like him, uh, like Esau, and sneaking in to receive the blessing. And so the promise of a savior is passed on to Jacob when it seems like it should have been passed on to Esau. Once that happens and dad dies, uh, Esau is very angry and he wants to kind of get it back for himself to earn forgiveness, if you will, for having despised that promise. And so Jacob's running away because he's afraid his brother Esau is going to take his life. Okay. And in this fearful situation, um, he's wondering, is God for me? Is God against me? Uh, did Did I somehow violate the promise of God by tricking my dad and maybe even causing my mom to sin and help me in my sin? You know, Jacob means trickster. Uh, how do I know for sure that uh, God is with me and not against me? And so God comes to him in a dream. Is this teaching us that we should, uh, as you know, some, some people propose even to this day, that we should uh, ask God to talk to us in our dreams? Is that what's going on here, Pastor? No. Um, and, and that's, I mean... Jacob doesn't ask for that to happen. Rather, God comes and speaks to him directly in the dream. And so it is God's working, not our, not his request for it or our request for it. We need to be aware of that, that that's how God speaks sometimes, and that's how he speaks to his servant Jacob here. And I think the great thing is here that the promise that he is given is that promise that there will be uh, the Savior born through him. Um, it's not about anything else, really, except for in you is the Savior going to be born, and in you are all these people going to be blessed and whatnot. And so that's that's really a key thing here. It's not about what color shirt he should wear. It's not about whether he should move to uh, Ipswich or if he should stay in Lincoln. It's not about, um, you know, who should he marry or anything like that. The promise and the dream is all about the promise of Jesus. 
before we get off of this dream thing, in the book of Hebrews, we are, we are taught that in the former days, God spoke to us in many and various ways. But now in these latter days, God speaks to us through his son. How does that put the kibosh on any kind of new revelation, dream kind of theology that may be out there? Well, uh, it, it drives us back to the most important thing again, which is the Word, uh, and that Word is recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures. And so we don't need to uh, have an emotional response or find some way for God to talk through us through creaks and moans of the floorboard or any other way. Uh, God has already made clear everything necessary in the Scriptures, and that's why you need to study the Scriptures and hear them as often as possible. We have the Bible. We don't need dream revelations. It's just that simple, folks. And so I, we're not 100% sure what Jacob's expectations were when he laid down to sleep. I'm sure he was hoping that Esau wouldn't find him and murder him in the middle of the night. I'm sure he was hoping that Esau wouldn't track him down. Um, I'm sure he was thinking about his physical safety. And God comes to him, reassures him of many promises, and in a sense, does the same thing for Jacob as he does for the man that's paralyzed on the mat. He gives him the forgiveness of sins. Now, he doesn't say it quite that way, not as explicitly as we have recorded for us in Matthew 9. In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Isn't that the same as saying your sins are forgiven? It is because it's the promise of Jesus. And this is the thing that uh, I was trying to drive home. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the thing that drives the entire Old Testament is the passing on of that promise of a Savior, the promise of someone who will take away sins, the promise of how God is going to take care of sin. And it passes from Adam to Seth to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, and now here we get it to Jacob. It passes on from there as well to Judah, uh, who is the ancestor of King David, uh, who, you know, if we go through the entire genealogy of the Bible, ultimately is the ancestor to Jesus as well, Mary and Joseph uh, both, and then Jesus born from them. And so the promise that your offspring uh, will bless the whole world is the promise of the cross and the resurrection. And we have to know that when we're reading the Old Testament. And at, uh, at Jesus' words, or God's word, if you want to uh, be a little more generic here. I think this is a theophany. But uh, anyway, uh, God's promise that in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We know that Jacob received that word of God in faith based on his reaction. How does Jacob react to the promise of a savior, to the promise of the forgiveness of sins, to the promise of the cross? Well, everyone, when they hear God's word and they believe it by the work of the Holy Spirit, their mouths are open to confess the truth of who God is. We do it each week in our service in the Creed, uh, in many other places as well. You know, we could talk about lots of them. And that's what David, or sorry, Jacob does here as well. 
He says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. In other words, he's acknowledging who God is and that this is the place where God has come and spoken to him and that God is the true master of the world, in a sense. And so he confesses what he has heard with his ears, and that's the same thing all Christians do. So Jacob hears the word of God. Jacob believes the word of God. Jacob confesses the word of God. And the focus here is not on the specific geographical spot. The focus is on God coming to him and bringing the word of God, the forgiveness of sins, the promises of God. Vicar, what is that today, or how does that happen today in the Christian church? That happens today in the divine service where you come in and you hear the pastor absolve you of your sins. You see it happen whenever a person is baptized and their sins are washed away and they are united to Christ. You hear it in the proclamation of the word and the readings and the sermon and you receive it in the sacrament of the holy altar. Above many entrances to sanctuaries, they have that phrase, you know, this is the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Not because, you know, God appeared there in a dream or vision, but because God has promised where his word and sacraments are, there he is for you, for your forgiveness. Wherever the word of God is proclaimed, taught, preached, sung in its truth and purity, wherever the sacraments of God are administered according to the command and promise of God, along with Jacob, we can cry out, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Have your expectations altered by the word of God to expect what God freely and graciously gives to you in his house in the divine service. We need to take another break. When we come back, we'll look at our epistle reading, Ephesians 4, 22 to 28. This is... Proclaiming the one. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. I never should find Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele, we are privileged to serve the saints. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us for the divine service. We gather each Sunday at 8 and 1030 with family Bible study in between. We have a um, very humanly speaking safe way to worship come and uh, hear the word of god receive the gifts of god if you're a little nervous about coming to god's house yet we are on the radio every service that we have is broadcast live knna 95.7 lp right here in lincoln nebraska you can check out our radio website thecross957.org or our church website goodshepherdlincoln.org and listen there check out our archives many programs uh, like 
proclaiming the one. We love to have your feedback. And uh, another way that some people have been finding about easing away back into God's house is to come to church on Wednesday evening. We have divine service year-round, Wednesday evening at 6.30. We love to see you, and we pray that God would richly bless us as we continue to deliver the most important thing, Jesus and the forgiveness, life, and salvation that only he can provide. The epistle reading for the 19th Sunday after Trinity is from Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 28. Vicar? Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Okay, we oftentimes talk here at Proclaiming the One on how the epistle reading, the last segment generally that we look at here, is a practical application of everything that we've been taught in our other readings. Well, what have we been taught? We've been taught that the primary reason why you should come to church is to receive the gifts of God. The primary reason why God has given you a pastor is for the forgiveness of sins, that we should be expecting what God desires to give to you, forgiveness, life, and salvation, full and free, and no strings attached. And now, with our epistle reading from Ephesians 4, it appears, at least at first glance, Pastor, that all of this gift promise forgiveness thing is thrown out the window and now it all depends on what I do. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put off your old self and put on the new self. Is this a contradiction to what we've been hearing, learning, and proclaiming or is this simply a fulfillment of what God's Word clearly teaches? Well, I think it's a fulfillment of what God clearly teaches in His Word, and I think we have to take it a little bit more context than just where our, our lesson picks up. Uh, we go back to the little bit before this. Paul is telling them they must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of minds with darkened, darkened understanding, alienating themselves from the life of God because of their ignorance. In other words, um, they don't love the things that God actually gives. They don't love the Word of God. They don't love what God promises, forgiveness, life, and salvation. They're worried about the things of this world. Uh, you know, are they going to get the promotion at work? Are they going to get uh, authority? and power, how much money will they have, how much land, how many slaves will they have, right? This is that time people are thinking about those things, and Paul says that's not the way it is with you. Put off that old self, and he even um, was very clear in the verses before, he says, the way of the Gentiles is not the way that you learned in Christ, uh, assuming, and I love this because Paul <laughs> says this, assuming that you have heard about Christ. Uh, and we're taught in him the truth as it is. In other words, 
if you're not acting like a Christian, then maybe you haven't actually heard about Jesus and what he did. He set you free from all these worldly pursuits. He's taught you to worry about the things that are actually important, uh, not whether a paralyzed man is able to walk again, but whether he has forgiveness of sins, not whether a man has stolen the birthright and uh, uh, built up his own power and wealth and authority, but whether he has heard and believed the word of God spoken to him. And that's the key for you as a Christian as well. Do you believe God's word is for you and that it is true, or are you distracted by the cares of the world and self-preservation and wealth and power and all the other things that the world tricks you into making your God? And uh, so I think that's the key thing here, and I'd I've been waxing eloquent, maybe not so eloquent here. I forget what your question was. <laughs> That's right. I, I, I just want to ask you straight up, simply, what does Paul mean when he says, put off the old self and put on the new self? In other words, this is the idea we talk about in the small catechism, right? Your old sinful nature needs to be drowned in the water of holy baptism so that a new man can daily arise and emerge to live before God in righteousness and purity. In other words, simply put, because you're Christian, act like a Christian. Don't do the things that non-Christians do. And it's not that you'll save yourself by doing that. It's not that you get a higher spot in heaven. Rather, the truth is you've been saved by Christ, and so you don't have to do the things you did before. Contrition and repentance. Two parts of repentance, to be sorry for your sins and to have faith. Can I say that to put off and to put on, as Paul is using it here in Ephesians 4, is simply a call to repent and believe? I'd say yes. A return to your baptism? Yes. Um, Vicar, a week and a half ago or so on Wednesday night, preached a sermon on Ephesians 4. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. In the early part of this chapter, Paul is extolling this unity that we have in Christ. And now, flowing from that unity, we have a divine call to repent, to live like a Christian. Is that a fair way to see this flowing, this Christian life flowing out of the waters of holy baptism? Yeah, and I think that that's then also where he's going to go in chapter 5 when he talks about... Um, you know, the way that a marriage works, and it's not really about the marriage itself, but it's always a reflection of Christ. And so that's why husbands and wives uh, act accordingly to each other. And, and that's the whole idea, right? We're Christians, and so we act like Christians. We live as Christians. We repent of our sin. We seek to do better. We confess when we fail, and we trust in the word of Christ that forgives our sins in each instance. We have two specific fruits here that come from this repentance, and the one is speak the truth with your neighbor. Don't let falsehood be on your mouth. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. I don't want to dig into that one. I want to go to the next one. Uh, in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and thus give opportunity to the devil. Pastor, how is this speaking to your neighbor with regard to your anger, not letting the sun go down on your anger, <clears throat> be angry and do not sin. How is this a 
practical guide for Christians with regard to how to settle our disputes, how to reconcile? How, how is this so key right here and right now today? Well, uh, the way a Christian operates is a Christian's always seeking to, you know, as we say in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Christian is always looking to forgive, even when they're angry, when even when there's someone who sins against them, even when there's a disagreement or a challenge. Christians want to deal with it and apply the blood and forgiveness of Christ that um, has been poured out for forgiveness over all these situations so that we might have confidence and trust that uh, we have a hope that's true in God uh, awaiting us. And so Christians do forgive. Uh, you know, it says, be angry and do not sin. And, I mean, that's what the Scripture teaches. Uh, I think we have a psalm and uh, also from Deuteronomy that uh, say those things. The idea is, if you're angry, don't let that consume you and don't let it become the thing that uh, becomes the entire focus of your life, but instead put the forgiving blood of Jesus over it. And I think that's some something that many people struggle with in this world. There is such a thing as righteous anger. For me, that righteous anger lasts about a quarter of a second and then spills over into outright sin and hatefulness and grudge-bearing and all that kind of stuff. Many people, if not most people, are probably just like me with regard to that. There is only one who has truly been angry and did not sin, and that is our Lord and Savior Jesus. Jesus was angry when he threw the money changers out of the temple. He was angry when he cursed the fig tree. But that was true righteous anger. And we see probably the greatest example of righteous anger from God the Father, who poured out his righteous anger on his own dear son on the cross to pay for all of our sins, including <laughs> our sins of thievery, not speaking the truth, unrighteous anger, and there again. The reason why we come to church is not to get 10 steps on how to deal with your anger, but to receive the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation that only Jesus can bring. Vicar, we need to bring things to a close. Would you pray the collect for the 19th Sunday after Trinity? Let us pray. Almighty and merciful God, of your bountiful goodness, keep from us all things that may hurt us, that we, being ready in both body and soul, may cheerfully accomplish whatever you would have us do. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. For Pastor Moline and Vicar Steele, I am Pastor Clint Poppy. Thank you for tuning in today to Proclaiming the One. We looked at the readings for the 19th Sunday after Trinity, and we would love to have you join us either in person, which is our preference, or over the radio airwaves, or uh, via YouTube. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church Media is the search engine there. But whatever the means, on Sunday morning when you wake up, read your paper, drink your coffee, please pray for your pastors. But most of all, go to church. God's richest blessings in Christ, who definitely is for you and not against you. Tell me, I did.